going to be in a few places in the scripture this morning, but there's one text I hope will resonate in your hearts and minds, and so we're going to read it together this morning. It's from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and um, uh, most of the scriptures that I will be referring to in one way or another are contained in the, the growth group sermon notes, just in the little headings there, so uh, on your own you can, through the week, go back and look some of them up, um, but I will make reference to them, but I think it's important that we reflect on this one verse as uh, something that is sort of the operating system behind this sermon today. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Our God and Father, we come before you today, and uh, I am thankful for this reminder. I pray that as we look at your word now, that we will see something of the beauty of your word, the glory of Christ, but specifically the work of your Spirit in us, how critical and how essential that is for us putting to death the deeds of the body so that we might live. Grant us life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this past few weeks, this is the fourth in a series of sermons, we've been considering this notion of self-talk, those inner conversations that we have with ourselves on, uh, on, just, on almost an incalculable basis or amount. The truth is, we're all, we all talk to ourselves. We're not always aware of it, but we do all talk to ourselves. And we've made progress in the last four weeks through, or three weeks through a number of, of passages in Scripture. But today, as we come to our, our text, it's about sanctification. After all, that's been the theme of what we've been trying to get at, is the sanctification of our self-talk. And it's through this process of sanctification, which is, the, is God working in us to make us holy, It's through this process that we become transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. That is our desire as Christians, is it not? To be holy and to be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. There's a number of verses that we could turn to, and and this is, um, I hope it's not too too theological of a sermon this morning, but there are a number of verses that we could turn to that would describe definitive salvation or the act of, uh, of us being made holy upon the point of conversion. But then there's a lot of verses that deal with the the progressive transformation that takes place in us. The the fact of the matter is we are not perfect. And the reality is is none of us will be perfect until the day that Christ comes back and we are glorified in body and spirit. But we are to be making progress towards perfection. So some of the verses that uh, I think that illustrate that for us, and I won't read all of the ones that I have, but they at least make the point. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. First Thessalonians has a lot to say about sanctification or this process of transformation. In verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. And then a little bit later, it says, For God has not called us to impurity, 
but in holiness. And then at the end of the book, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think one of the most stunning passages about sanctification and holiness is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And near the end of the book, we read about the work and the ministry of Christ and we understand that Christ loved the church and gave, him up, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. The whole work of Jesus Christ is in order to sanctify us and to transform us into his likeness and his image. One more, um, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As you read those texts, you get an understanding that holiness is a command. We get an understanding that it is the will of God. We learn very quickly that it has been something that is made possible to us because of what Jesus Christ did in his life and his death and then his subsequent resurrection. But I hope that, uh, and that, that we understand that at the heart of this transformation of holiness in us is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is through His work that we are able to draw near to God, to please God in our body and soul, and finally become conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And so that's where I want us to settle for the rest of the morning, is to acknowledge the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to sanctify our inner thoughts and our hearts. I left last Sunday night feeling a little bit um, that I hadn't done what I needed to do. At the end of uh, Sunday night's service, usually once a month, we, we don't do it regularly, but we try to do it, is we have a question and answer period. At the end of the sermon, we just stop and, and we ask if there's people that have questions uh, that relate to the sermon series or things that have come up in their mind. And there's three or four questions that people asked, which were good questions. One person asked, so Paul, can you tell me the difference between positive and negative thinking and what you're talking about, um, sanctification of our self-talk? So I gave what I thought was a helpful answer. Another person asked the question along the lines of, uh, Paul, can you define for me the distinction between cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the modification and the alteration of our thinking so that it changes our behaviors? Can you define for me what, the difference between um, cognitive behavioral therapy and the sanctification of our self-talk? So again, I gave an answer which I, I thought was appropriate, and I don't think it was wrong. And then a third person asked me, Paul, um, would you tell me, how does this process work in our life? How do we actually change our self-talk and sanctify it? And so again, I gave an answer which I thought was helpful. At the end of the service, though, I was talking with one person. He says, I would have answered the question this way. And it struck me that I had missed the mark in every single response. Not once did I mention that the difference is the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely critical that we understand that difference. 
Because without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, those things are not bad things, positive, negative, self-talk, cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to, well, those two alone. Those are not bad things in and of themselves, but those without the work of the Holy Spirit will not bring about sanctification in our hearts and in our lives. The absolute difference then for those of us who are thinking about this, is the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit in me that I'm able to transform my thoughts and my imaginations and those things that go on in my heart, that I'm able to transform them into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. Without His involvement, my efforts may bring about change on the temporal level, but they will not bring about spiritual change nor eternal change. And so my my first question as I I thought then, and I said to myself, okay, we need a sermon on this. Um, And so I thought, okay, when we talk about sanctification, where does it start then experientially in us? Where does this work of sanctification start? Well, it begins simply with a relationship with God. With regeneration is is another biblical word that we talk about. Or being born again. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in us where he takes we who are dead in our sins and our trespasses and he makes us alive in God. It's a, it's a word that we sometimes, we refer to it again as born again or rebirth or as born of God or born of the Spirit of God or born of the Word. We talk about being new creations in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, that is entirely and only a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Without that work, you cannot sanctify your self-talk. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, um, verses 5 to 9, and I'll read these texts and listen carefully to this. I'm always amazed at the simplicity of the Word of God. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So do you see the necessity of the Spirit right away, loved ones? That without the Spirit of God in us, we cannot please God. We cannot act in a way that brings honor and glory to God's name. The Bible presents only two mindsets in this world. There's a mindset that is bent on the flesh and pleasing the flesh, and it's a mindset that is hostile to God, and there's a mindset then that is formed and shaped by the Spirit of God, and it's a mindset that is pleasing to God. There are only those two mindsets. And it requires the work of the Spirit of God in us to bring new life to us so that all of a sudden we can change the orientation of our thinking towards eternal matters and issues. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in us, those internal dialogues that we have will never be pleasing to God. They may bring about a change in behavior. They may may bring about a good change in behavior. But they will not be a change that is pleasing to God in the sense of sanctifying that behavior. So as we think about that, I read um, uh, uh, from uh, J.R. Packer. He said, Stoked in constant prayer, 
uh, or then all our attempts to get our thinking, and I added in our self-talk, in line with truth, need to be soaked in constant, constant prayer that acknowledges our inability to change ourselves, and in thanksgiving that recognizes, as Harriet Auber put it, every virtue we possess, every victory won, and every, heart, every thought of holiness are his spirits alone. I love that. I can't do it on my own. I need the Holy Spirit. And in the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit that gets all the credit for the good thoughts that I have. So sanctification. What is its goal and how is it achieved? And this is why you will see again the, 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 the extraordinary difference between sanctification of our self-talk and then just changing our, our thinking from positive to negative or changing our thinking so that it results in different behaviors. What is the goal and how is it achieved in sanctification? Well, the goal is the transformation of us into the likeness of Christ. That is what we're about when we're thinking about changing our self-talk and our dialogue. It's not so that we will think differently or not be so hard on ourselves. It's rather so that our thinking will be conformed to the thinking of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The, the work of sanctification is to restore in the follower of Jesus Christ that image that was marred in the fall and by sin so that the image now becomes created in the likeness of God. That's what we're about. We're not only about having our external behaviors changed so that they become in the likeness of Christ, but we want to have our hearts and our minds to begin to be shaped into the likeness and image of Christ. And that's the goal of the Spirit's work in the, in the changing or the sanctification of our self-talk is so that we would have the heart and mind of Christ. One person said, Christ-likeness is the end in view. I would say that of your conversations, your, your self-talk. Christ-likeness is the end in view. That's what we're trying to get at here, is to shape our thoughts so that we think like Christ would think. Sanctification is the transformation which produces it. I want to be like Christ. How do I become like Christ? It's the Spirit of God that works in me to produce that result. So now I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Become I am Jesus who by my Spirit will transform you into my likeness. Be holy because I am holy means you belong to God's family. Jesus Christ is your elder brother. His spirit dwells in you, enabling you to follow in his footsteps as the spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit then is the agent of this transformation. So what are we striving for, loved ones? We are striving to bring the thoughts and intentions and imaginations of our hearts and our minds into conformity with the likeness and image of Christ. That can only happen as we submit to the spirit of God in our hearts and lives. It's achieved through union with Christ. I wrestled around here because I, I can't think of anything more critical to this process of sanctification, and yet I can't think of anything that we talk less about, and we need to talk more about it. I think Romans chapter 6, more than any other chapter in the Bible, describes for us this work of the Spirit of God in uniting us to Christ. It's this work where, and the language, and some of you this may be so foreign or unfamiliar language. Bear with me and listen, and, and I hope you understand it. But, but when you become a Christian, when you're born again, you become united to Christ. You become identified to Christ. 
in order, uh, we, we used to sing this song, my life is in you, Lord, my strength is in you, Lord. In other words, the whole of my living now becomes a living that is united or connected to Christ. And, and as this chapter 6 of Romans helps us understand, is that the heart of sanctification is our deliverance from sin and our now ability to use our, the members of our body and our minds as instruments of righteousness. And it is only through union with Christ, our being identified or baptized into Christ, that we will ever be able to transform our thinking and our thoughts. Romans 6 says, by definition, believers, followers of Christ, are those who have died to sin. That's a hard concept because all of us are alive here. None of us here have died. But in the spiritual realm, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you do die. You, you, you die by the work of the Holy Spirit so that sin no longer controls you or reigns in you or has power over you. Um, because of our new identity in Christ, Paul the Apostle can say, I have been crucified with Christ. That means death. I have died with Christ. And then he goes on and says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So no longer is it my sin that animates my body or the flesh that animates my body and my mind. It is now the life of Christ that animates my body and controls my thinking. This is a profound reality because the very idea then of continuing in sin, after you claim to be a follower of Christ, the idea of of saying, well, now I can just keep sinning, is a profound misunderstanding of what it means to be united in Christ. And that's why Paul is shocked when the people say to him, well, can I continue in sin that grace might increase? And he says, how can that be? He says, you have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Your sin nature is dead. You are now alive in Christ. It is just just so completely foreign to Paul to think that we could continue to sin after having been united with Christ. It's a profound mystery where the Spirit works in us who are alive physically, kills us spiritually, unites us to Christ, and then by the power of God through the Spirit, we are born again to new life in Christ. That's the work of the Spirit who takes the work of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, And he plants that in us. To continue in sin, then, would deny our unity with Christ. I hope you understand. There is freedom in understanding this, loved ones. We can only sanctify, then, our self-talk when we realize that we have been united with Christ and the implications of that. If you were to read the rest of Romans chapter 6 today, you would understand that before we were united with Christ, we were united to sin. And the flesh, and even in our hearts and minds. And Paul portrays sin, almost, he almost personifies it in Romans chapter 6. He would say that sin is portrayed as a king who reigns. And, and we understand a king who reigns has power and authority over his subjects. He would describe sin as a general who employs our bodies as weapons in his warfare. And so our, our bodies, when we're living in sin, are controlled by sin such that it tells us what to do and how to use our bodies. It, he also says that sin is a master that tyrannizes us. And his fourth one is that sin is an employer who pays wages to those who serve it. 
you sometimes feel that that's the case in your life? That somehow sin is still this king that reigns over you? That it is this general that tells you what to do? It is this master who tyrannizes you? It is this employer that kind of pays wages to you? I would say either then one has not been born again or one has not understood that they are united with Christ and that the power of sin has been broken in their lives. See, when the Holy Spirit comes, though, he unites us with Christ, and it says that our old self is done away with. That means everything that we were before we found Jesus is done away with. It's power, it's control, it's influences. It has been, it has been put to death by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It has been rendered powerless, Paul says in Romans. In other words, that through our death and union with Christ, that, that sin is actually powerless in us. He says we have been freed from sin. You see, if we, get to, if we begin to understand that, loved ones, we have a whole new approach to dealing with sin in our lives. I'm not saying that we will ever be perfect, but I am saying that we will make great strides in this process of sanctification when we understand that we don't have to listen to sin any longer. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Its reign over us is dead. It has no authority any longer. We don't have to do what it tells us to do. We can use our bodies as instruments in the service of the Lord. I found one quote just so helpful in this sense. It says, The new identity in Christ, this being united with Christ, is the groundwork that the Spirit lays for adequately dealing with the continuing presence of sin. The fact of union with Christ in his death to sin and new life to God is the foundation for growth in holiness. Do you understand that? You will never make progress in holiness if you don't understand that the foundation of it is that you have died to sin and you have been united with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. That is the foundation. He says the knowledge of that foundation provides the motivation. I want to be like Christ. Christ is living in me. How can I think like that? How can I talk like that to myself? Christ is living in me. And so, as a result, holiness should be a natural thing to us. So, uh, why do I need the Spirit's help? The goal is, I want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The means of reaching that goal is that we have been united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So, why do I need the Spirit's help? Well, I need the Spirit's help to search my mind and my life and apply Scripture to my heart. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. And we should openly and honestly pray, Spirit of God, would you search me and would you look inside of me and is there stuff in there that I'm not willing to admit or that I don't even know that you need to reveal to me? Because the Spirit of God knows us intimately. I was reading a, a number of texts and uh, I had originally tended to, to preach the whole sermon on these kinds of texts, but, but God knows everything about us, loved ones. Initially, that might be frightening, but I find it absolutely comforting. To Jeremiah, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. As David talks with his son, he reminds him to know the God of your father and to serve him with a whole might or a whole heart and a willing mind. I like that. To serve him with our heart and a willing mind. 
For he says, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. That same son would later write, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In other words, loved ones, God knows what's going on inside of you. In spite of this truth, and I found this staggering in my thinking this last week. We live sometimes as though that's not true. And sometimes we live like that in the presence of God. I was reading in, in Genesis chapter 17 and 18, this amazing interaction with God and Abraham. And God had come to Abraham, uh, and after many years that they had experienced childness, or childlessness, sorry. They dearly wanted to have children. They couldn't have any children. God had said that he would, he would bless them with heirs that numbered more than the sands of the sea, and yet they still were childless. And so God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I will give you a son by her. Pretty nice of God to do. It's Abraham's response that stuns me. It says, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, there's this self-talk. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Have you ever laughed in the face of a promise of God to you? It stuns me that, that he would even physically express that before God. But then, a little bit later, God comes back to Abraham, and he reminds God, or reminds Abraham, sorry, of this promise. He repeats it, and he says, this time, next year, um, Sarah will have a son. This time, Sarah is hiding in her tent, and she's listening to this conversation between God and Abraham. And it says this, when she heard this, the promise that she would have a son, she laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, And my Lord is old, shall I have that pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? It just illustrates to you, loved ones, the audacity of our self-talk, but also the intimate knowledge of God in our thoughts and in our hearts. This, like many other texts, demonstrates that God is aware of those conversations. And if you want to sanctify your self-talk, then I would say you ought to pray on a regular basis, Spirit of God, would you come and search my heart? I wrote down this prayer in my notes. It's personal, but um, it's what I wrote down. Father, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Please, by your Spirit, search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Let me be open to the convicting work of your Spirit. Allow me to be humble before your Word, as the Spirit applies the Word in such a way that it will discern my thoughts and the intentions of my heart. I need the Spirit to put to death the deeds of my body. No one ever said it would be easy. We have words in the Bible that describe a very brutal process. Putting to death and putting on various attributes and characteristics. 
The Bible tells us there, there are things in our lives that we need to put to death. Thought patterns, thought processes, behaviors that we need to put to death. It's a progressive killing of sin that still raises its ugly head in our lives. The other is the positive, and it, develop, it implies a development into Christ-likeness, to forming Christ-like habits in our life. And it's a lifelong process, then, of putting to death some things and putting um, on other things. I, I liken it like getting dressed. There are, we take off dirty clothes. When you come out from working in the garden or from, from, from doing some hard work and your clothes are sweaty, you take them off and you shower and you put on new clothes. Well, in a sense, that's a process that's ongoing in the Christian life. That we are constantly taking off stuff that is dirty and, and filthy and ugly and we're putting on stuff that is clean and righteous and honoring to God. Ephesians 4 says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. He's talking about some bad behaviors and he's saying, listen, that's not Christ in you. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, listen to this, put off your old self, which, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's the influence of self-talk again. And it's the, the imaginations and the desires. And it says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Another says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. But how do we do this? Well, loved ones, this is where I come back to the absolute need of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I read Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see how we need the Spirit of God in our lives? It's a matter of negating, of wishing dead, of laboring to thwart inclinations, cravings, and habit that have been with you or in you for a long time. Pain and grief, moans and groans will certainly be involved, for your sin does not want to die, nor will it enjoy the killing process. If you have been involved in this process of sanctification, you will know that it is painful. Packer goes on and he says, Jesus told us very vividly, that mortifying, that's putting to death a sin, could very well feel like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or foot. In other words, self-mutilation. You will feel you are saying goodbye to something that is so much part of you that without it, you cannot live. Have you ever thought that you can't live without a sin? Have you ever thought that you might just hide a few in the corner of your life because they bring pleasure or they bring something into your life and... If you've tried to put it off, you understand just how hard it really is. Loved ones, this is where we see, again, the need of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. We need the work of the Spirit in us to help us understand how we get rid of this kind of stuff. We need to starve these, these urges and what stimulates them. 
Jerry Packer goes on, he says, if it's pornography, if lust is the issue, visits to smorgasbords, if the urge is gluttony, avoiding casinos, if the urge is greed. As we find our self-talk leading us away from obedience, we must learn at that moment to run to our Lord, cry for help, asking him to deepen our sense of his holy presence and redeeming love, and to give us the strength to say no to that which can only displease him. It is the Spirit who moves us to act in this way, who makes our sense of the holy love of Christ vivid, who imparts the strength for which we pray and who actually drains the life out of sins we starve. I love that. It's that work of cooperation with the Spirit of God. What I'm commending to you, and I'm glad that there's some younger people and some children here today, because what I'm commending to you is best started early in life. If you're thinking of putting off a response to Christ till you're older in life and have lived a bit of time, you're doing something very dangerous because you are allowing habits of sin to form in your life that, should you come to a saving knowledge of God, will take just a great amount of work to rid yourself of. The time to start this process is where you're young. When you've not had the length of years to establish habits of thinking and patterns of living that make this work even more painful in our lives. The Bible clearly points out, and many of us know this, that there are some sins that are easily handled. They're the casual one-offs that that we commit and and that we're able to deal with them and and we confess them and and they don't have a, a, a driving influence on us. But mortifying what the Puritans called besetting sins or, or, or dispositional sins or to which our temperament inclines us like cowardlessness or thoughtlessness or these habitual sins that have become so addictive and defiant is regularly, and this is what he says, a long drawn out bruising struggle. Some of you know that struggle. That bruising struggle as now with the work of the Holy Spirit you put off that sin that you should have said no to years earlier in your life. No one who is a spiritual realist will even pretend otherwise. It's only through the Spirit that we're able to do this. I wrote another prayer in my notes, and I said, Father, I'm struggling with the remnants of my flesh. I recognize the influence of my thoughts and my heart upon my self-talk and subsequent behavior. Help me to submit to the Spirit and to recognize His leading in what I watch, read, and listen to. Help me to walk in the path the Spirit sets before me in Your Word. I want to be renewed in the Spirit of my mind. I want to see more of the likeness of God in me as I'm conformed to the image of Christ. I will blast quickly through this last point. Uh, it's, it's more a point of application. How do we form Christ-like habits? Like what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. I love this again by setting ourselves deliberately to do the Christ like thing in every situation. You might have heard this sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in us is what J.I. Packer would call the ninefold pattern of habitual reaction to life's pressures. I love that. The ninefold pattern of habitual reaction to life's pressures. He's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
And this is, this is how we might use this in, in our self-talk in our life. And, and the behavioral strategy for changing how we think and how we respond to situations. Love. As the Christ-like reaction to people's malice and bitterness and hatred towards us. Joy. As the Christ-like reaction to depressing circumstances. Peace as the Christ-like reaction to troubles and threats and, and, and invitations to anxiety. Patience as the Christ-like reaction to all that is maddening and frustrating in my life. Kindness as the Christ-like reaction to all who are unkind to me. Goodness as the Christ-like reaction to bad people and bad behavior. Faithfulness as the Christ-like reaction to lies and fury and self-control as the Christ-like reaction to every situation that goads you to lose control. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is a series of habits of action or habitual dispositions, accustomed ways of thinking and feeling and behaving through which the Spirit transforms our thinking into the likeness of Christ. 